1: Welcome, everybody. I'm Rena Weissman. I'm the coordinator of SF&SF Science Fiction, San Francisco, A Perfect Fit. And uh, without further ado, uh, Terry Bisson. Well, thank you all for being here. It's a good crowd tonight. Uh, And I won't take a lot of your time. I want to remind everybody to turn your cell phones on in case a better offer comes along. And um, we have two distinguished And beloved authors here tonight. Uh, The man on my right is a medical doctor of some repute and long-standing. He's also sold roadies from a handcart, I believe, (laughs) studied public health in Yugoslavia, but has written some very distinguished novels and short stories and also a movie. He's the author of The Movement of Mountains, XY, The Healer, the short story collection, Brains of Rats. He's a World Fantasy and a Tree Award and a Bram Stoker nominee. And without further ado, I welcome my friend and colleague, Michael Blumlein.
0: Thanks, Gary. <laughs> so I'm gonna read from a new uh, story. And I wanna say a word f- uh, about this story. Uh, And also about the other work I do, which is I'm a doctor, as Terry said. On one level, the story I'm going to read is about information. And in medicine, getting information is key to everything we do, and how we interpret the information, and then what we do with it, and how we proceed. Years, I'm a little nervous, so let me take a breath. (laughs) (laughs) Breathing is good. Breathing (laughs) is good, yeah. (laughs) So years ago, um, in thinking of information, we used to order this test called the SMAC-20, and sometimes a SMAC-24. And in this test, we examined 20 or, or so um, distinct laboratory values of various organs and various bodily systems. And it was sort of a shotgun test. It was a catch-all. We weren't looking at anything in specific, in specifically. We were just sort of throwing it out there and seeing, is anything wrong? Well, it turns out, the chance of getting a false positive in any test is around 5%. So if you do 20 tests, the chances of of getting a falsely positive one is, it it approaches about 100%. So what we start, what started Mm -hmm. happening, or what we saw is that we'd get all these false positives. Once you get a false positive, you don't know it's a false positive, it just turns out as a positive test and it leads to other tests, and these other tests sometimes lead to other tests, and sometimes some of these tests are not so fun to have, Um, and people don't like them very much. We stopped doing this test. Now we get a little more focused. Now we do other tests. One of those tests we do now is called the MRI. Um, The MRI is an amazing and a powerful tool, and it's, we we see things, excuse me, No. okay. Uh, it shows us things we could never see before. And many of these things that we see, they're actually key to giving us the diagnosis we want. So it's really, really useful. Some of the things we see have no bearing on the diagnosis. They're incidental findings. Not, re- not exactly what you would call noise, but not really signal either. We call them incidentalomas. And they, too, often lead to further tests, and some of these tests um, are kind of invasive, and uh, they cost a lot of money, and they lead to a lot of anxiety. A couple of months ago, I had my very first patient who came in, and he had his genome sequenced. Uh, This is our newest source of information, and this is incredibly exciting. We, there's so much we have, we can learn and that, and we are learning from this. And it's really information we never dreamed of having before, unless, of course, you're a science fiction writer. The problem is, we don't know how to interpret this information. Usually it comes in the form of of a percent, like you have a 30 or a 40 percent risk of getting this disease. What do you do with this? And the thing is, there's really very little we can do. We can, uh, we can tell people at risk, say, of having diabetes or heart disease that they should eat better, they should get modest exercise, they shouldn't smoke. This is what we tell everybody. Rarely we can offer someone a miracle cure. These people might be faced with a a terrible life-altering choice. They might have to embark on a course of treatment, the outcome of which they have no idea. They can't predict. It's an incredible time in Madison. It's fraught with promise, it's fraught with peril. As one of my characters, as as a character in this story I'm going to read says, progress is a great God. It's the God of the impossible. It is not, however, a God with mercy. So with that as an introduction, I'm going to read the first part, unfortunately, of this story. Because the second part maybe relieves some of the tension that the first part creates, but you don't get to hear that, huh? (laughs) Because it just runs on a little too long.
1: See, if he were a poet, there wouldn't be any question about it. Poets go straight on apologizing for taking up so much time and taking it up anyway.
0: So this story is from what I've, uh, started to think of, uh, as a group of my stories that I'm calling The Doctor Diaries. And this one is called 22 and You. (laughs) She didn't want the test. She had vowed not to get it done. What she wanted was a family, she and Elliot both. She would never have married a man who didn't want kids. Like her, he fancied a brood. One, if one was all they could have, but two would be better. Three would be better still. Four, he had asked in one of their giddier moments, how would you feel about four? Four, she said, would do nicely. Five? She had smiled at the thought. More, he had asked, those killer eyes of his widening slightly. I couldn't imagine more than five, she had said, meaning, of course, that she could. As for the test, there'd be time enough later after the children were born, and after she and Elliot had been married a few more years. Not that she had any doubts about their marriage. Elliot loved her deeply, and she loved him. It seemed the most natural thing in the world, this love, like breathing. In another way, it was a constant surprise to her, like opening an unexpected and wonderful gift. She felt it between them many times a day. Actually, she felt it pretty much whenever she thought about it. It was a living connection. So many of her friends had to work at keeping their marriages running smoothly. Hers ran smoothly by default, and a large part of this, she felt, was due to Elliot. It was like her mother had said on the day before the wedding when she'd pulled pulled Ellen away from the last-minute preparations and taken her for a final premonuptial mother-daughter walk. Darling, she <coughs> said, I know we haven't always seen eye to eye. You don't always approve of how I handle things. We've had our differences. Ellen had started to reply. Wasn't it the reverse, her mother, who didn't approve? And did they have to talk about this now? Hmm. Please, let me finish. It's not my business to judge you. It's my business to love you, and I do. I think you've made a spectacular choice. I wish you every happiness not that you need anyone's wish. It's there for for you. It's there for you. I can see it ahead for many years. Ellen felt the same, but she was curious. Why do you say that? How do you know? It's written all over your face and all over his. It's in the air whenever you're together. Ellen had blushed. This was the mother she loved. I'm so happy, Mom. I feel so lucky. I'm happy, too. Luck is a wonderful thing, but it's not all luck, sweetheart. You had something to do with it. You picked a good one." A good one, yes, she had. It was true. Elliot was a good man, and she knew he would not leave her for anything. Not for love or for money, and not if she had her breasts removed. He did love her breasts. He was a man, after all. He loved the shape of her body, and her breasts were a part of that shape. He loved to touch them, hold them in his hands, press his face against them, smother them with kisses. Sometimes she felt self-conscious about them. She was a woman, after all, and had her moments of wondering if they were too big or too small, if the circles around the nipples were too dark, if the nipples themselves looked right. But on the whole, she liked her breasts, too. She liked her body, and she was happy that Elliot liked it, and she loved the sensation of her nipples being caressed and kissed and the sharp line of pleasure that sent from breast to womb. That said, in no way did their relationship depend on them. If her breasts were gone, she would adjust, and Elliot would too. In sickness and in health, he had vowed, and he was a man who took his vows seriously. The ovaries and uterus, on the other hand, a slightly bigger deal. Elliot would say the same thing, do it, have them removed. He would not hesitate. In the future, no word of regret would ever cross his lips. He would hide his disappointment, wall it off from her and perhaps from himself as well. Your life is more important, he would say, than our having kids. And he'd mean it. Of course he would. But for her, not so simple. Not simple at all. She would always know what she had failed to produce. There would be a hole in her life and this would be the source of immeasurable sorrow. There would be a shadow over their marriage, an absence that she could not begin to think of how to fill. Having kids was etched so deeply in her. It was there inside for as long as she could remember, inseparable from who she was. Womanhood meant many things, and one of these was was motherhood. This seemed only natural. Most of her friends, both married and unmarried, felt the same. Getting pregnant, giving birth, raising a family, let the wild rumpus begin. (laughs) It was nature's gift and plan. You could live without breasts, but without kids, without ovaries and a uterus. This seemed unnecessarily cruel, and she would not do it. She could not. The ovaries and uterus were hers and would stay. She would not part with them, and furthermore, she would not put herself in a position where she would have to consider parting with them. In other words, she would not do the test to see if she had that awful gene, the one her grandmother and her mother had that one or any of the others that interacted with it, the so-called constellation that would put her at such grave risk. For if she had it, she wouldn't be able to ignore it. She wouldn't be allowed to. Elliot wouldn't let her. Her mother wouldn't let her. The two of them would keep at her to do something about it in all the ways that loved ones exerted their love. She preferred to remain ignorant for the time being. Among her friends, nearly all of whom had been fully genotyped, this bordered on the heretical. You got a wax, a pedicure, you kept in shape, you kept in touch, you had your genome done. These were not the days of being uninformed. These were the days of knowing absolutely everything you could about yourself, your friends, your friends' friends, the world around you. Refuse data, Deny it, either going out or coming in. Keep your own counsel. You might as well pack your bags and go live in a cave. True, your genome was yours in a sense, a certain narrow, private, misanthropic, self-centered sense, but in a larger, fuller, more generous sense, a global sense, if you will, it was everyone's. Your genome was part of the great worldwide human pool, and in this sense was public domain. Friends deserved to know who they were friends with. They deserved to know what their friends were made of, what building block-wise they had inside, what this might lead to, and what their pedigree was. You might discover you shared a friend's single nucleotide polymorphism, her SNP, and how cool would that be? You might even be related. Maybe your ancestors hunted together on the steppes of Mongolia, Maybe they shared a yurt and snuggled under the very same reindeer hide. This was information that people who cared about people should know. (laughs) Ellen heard from more friends than she knew she had, sharing their experiences and concerns and urging her to get profiled. She received links to one site after another until she cried, enough, give it a rest, but the sites continued, continued to find their way onto her screen. 23andMe announced monthly specials. Our chromosomes ourselves offered two-for-ones. And Genomania promised a free sequencing in exchange for the names of five or more friends who'd be interested in their services. No, thank you, she said to the screen, hitting delete. No, thank you, unsubscribing. No, thank you. No, thank you. Leave me alone. Go away. I don't want your stupid test. I'll do it AK after kids. Her mother pleaded with her not to wait that long. Getting pregnant could trigger the cancer. It was a big risk. You waited, Ellen reminded her. I don't have the full constellation. I just have the one bad gene. Pregnancy wasn't an issue. Besides, they didn't have the test when I was your age. They didn't have the technology. Would you have done it if they did? Absolutely. It was a bald-faced, if forgivable lie. I don't want to know something I'm not going to do anything about, Ellen replied. It'll just worry me. It doesn't worry you now. It worries me. Not as much as if I knew it for a fact, then it would be like the cancer was already there, already growing inside of me. What her mother wanted to say was, maybe it is, but she couldn't be that cold, not even in the name of love, so she held her tongue It would be like placing a curse on her daughter and she knew how it felt to be cursed. She'd had cancer in both breasts and had had both breasts removed along with the plumbing down below. It had been an awful experience and that was before the complications. She'd never fully recovered. The best thing she could say about the multiple surgeries was that she would never have to have them again. Now the cancer was back in one of her lungs. She hadn't yet told her daughter. How could she? What would she say? She hoped if she waited long enough, she wouldn't have to say anything. She'd be hit by a car and die a quick and sudden death, or die in her sleep, even better. Better still, the cancer would disappear. Her body would fight it off, or it would somehow self-destruct. A Harry carries suicidal cancer. It could happen. She'd read accounts. It could shrivel up like a pea and leave her in peace. Being a peace-loving woman, she spent a fair amount of time every day visualizing this outcome. She also spoke to it at times, as she might to a disobedient child, or an alien, or an enemy. She tried to reason with it, negotiate it, court its favor, compromise. So far, it wasn't listening. It continued to grow and divide. Her visualizations and conversations didn't seem to be working. The drugs weren't working either. At a certain point, she felt she had no choice but to tell her daughter. She did it over coffee at Ellen and Elliot's apartment. Elliot was working in the back. Ellen was stunned. She shook her head as if it couldn't be true. When she recovered her voice, she got angry, as her mother had suspected she might. She didn't like being kept in the dark, especially about something like this. She didn't understand why her mother insisted on being so secretive. But the anger didn't last. Soon it was swept away by a river of tears. When Elliot finally wandered out to say hello, the two of them were locked in a fierce embrace. He was next to get the news. It was not a happy moment. The three of them talked for a while, then Mom drove herself home. The apartment seemed to shrink in her absence. The air felt heavy, the walls pressed in, Ellen had to get out, and she and Elliot took a walk. The streets were crowded, the sun was warm, the city was alive all around them. Ellen felt this life acutely, almost painfully, and when they got back home, she asked Elliot to make love to her. She tended to be a vocal lover. Restraint was not her M.O., not, as it were, in her genes. She loved to make noise, to moan and groan and even cry out. This time, as she reached her climax, the cry was different, harsher, as if something was being torn from her. Afterwards, she continued to cry, and Elliot held her until at length she quieted. Later, curled in the warmth of his arms, she announced that she decided to have the test done. She would get her genome sequenced, A to Z. I'm glad, he said. Will you be glad when I have no breasts, when I can't have kids? Because once I do this and I find out I have those stupid genes, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to do what I have to. If that means letting them rip me apart, I will. I refuse to stick my head in the sand like my mother did. They're not going to rip you apart, he said. They'll take away some precious items. They won't take you. Are you ready for a life without kids? He hesitated for less than a second. Would it have mattered if he hadn't? if he'd answered immediately. We'll work it out, he said. Our dream will die, she thought. I just want you to know where I stand. Showing him how tough she could be when she made up her mind, warning him. Was she also, he wondered, asking him to take issue with her, fight her on this? Say no, don't do it. Why do you say your mother stuck her head in the sand, he asked. She didn't know she was at risk until she was first diagnosed. She didn't want to know. Her mother had cancer, and there was a test for it years ago. Not like we have now, but it was something. She just refused to get it done. This was news to Elliot. It put a whole new spin on Ellen's own refusal, like maybe it was some weird kind of loyalty thing. He didn't understand it, but he didn't have to. I'll love you always, he said, no matter what. They can rip everything apart till there's nothing left and I'll love that. Don't be morbid. I'm just saying. I know, and thank you. I'll remind you later you said that. He kissed her on the ear, then the neck. You won't have to remind me. I won't forget. She swallowed a lump in her throat. He kissed her breast. She felt a tingle, a stirring in her belly. Again, he asked. They did it again, and afterwards conked out. Elliot woke midway through the night. Ellen was turned away from him, her arms clutched tightly across her chest, crying softly in her sleep. It punctured his sleepy bubble of contentment, and he wrapped his arms around her, hugging and holding her from behind, until eventually her sobbing ceased. The next morning, he rose early and closeted himself in the study. By the time Ellen was up, showered, and dressed, he had what he wanted and had uploaded it to his pad. He brought it to Ellen, who put her own pad down and looked at his. I found this yesterday, he told her. 22 and you? It's a startup. They're like an hour away. She scanned the page. You believe this, she asked. I don't disbelieve it. It seems like a joke. What, gene therapy? Hardly. This therapy. They claim they can rewrite any gene you have. You'd think something like this would be in the news. It was in the news, it is, but they're new. They don't have much of a track record. It's an evolving story. Evolving, she thought, try outrageous. Still, it was something, maybe, but first things first. They ordered the genome kit that same morning. Like an arrow waiting to be launched, it came the very next day. Ellen unwrapped the package with some excitement, which surprised her. She worked up a nice glob of spit, full, she hoped, of cheek cells, emptied it into the vial, sealed the vial, and sent it off. Six weeks later, the results arrived online. Earlier that week, she'd gotten a call from her mother. These were calls that she dreaded, but this time the news was good, amazingly good. The cancer was in retreat. It was shrinking. Who knew why? A delayed effect of the drugs? The visualization? Both? Neither. It's a reprieve, said her mother cautiously. Ellen was thinking more along the lines of a miracle, but either would do. She wasn't going to quibble. She felt like shouting for joy. The news carried her until the day her own results arrived. Let there be a miracle now, she thought, staring at the company's screen before logging on, heart pounding, hope battling dread. This is what she found out. One, She had a low risk for diabetes. Two, she carried something called RS1805007, which explained her strawberry blonde hair. Three, she was hypersensitive to a drug used to thin the blood. Four, her ancestors roamed the forests of Eastern Europe. They had interbred with tribes to the south. They had also interbred with Neanderthals. Five, she had sticky earwax. This, she already knew. (laughs) Now, though, she no longer had to feel guilty when her ears got clogged. It wasn't her fault. It was in her genes. (laughs) Six, she carried the triggering endocrine stutter sequence gene, TESS-233, the one her mother had. She also had another gene, probably from her father, a hormone-sensitive promoter gene. It was part of the constellation they had feared Were she to get pregnant, her chance of getting cancer of the breast and ovary was near certain. 22 and you, the company Elliot had found, was named after the number of chromosome pairs minus one. The one according to their upbeat breezy website being you. You were the wild card. You were the one in charge who decided what needed to change. You were the supplier of that critical information, the orchestrator of your personal future, the orth- author with a capital A of your own destiny. This was their guarantee, their promise to unzip, repair, and rezip whatever gene needed fixing, then send you on your way. Their motto put the ever after for ever after in your hands. The company was housed in a spanking new box off the freeway. Ellen and Elliot visited it the week after she got the results. Their appointment was the last of the day. It had not been the best week of her life. She'd had nightmares every night, terrible things fraught with images of disfigurement and loss. More than once she'd woken like a bolt in the darkness, drenched in sweat and gasping for air. Her waking hours were hardly better. She hated what was inside of her. She dreaded what lay, lay ahead. Elliot had high hopes about this company, but that was Elliot. She didn't share them. The whole thing seemed too good to be true, too simple, too easy. How could they perform these miracles? The answer, they couldn't. It was hype. In the end, she would have the surgeries and be a husk of a woman, a non-woman, for what remained of her sad, barren life. The reception room was full, men, women, and children of every age. Her eyes glided over the men, lingering on the women and most especially the children. Such beautiful things. What she wondered had brought them. What terrible condition did they have? How thin the line between a normal life and this. She felt a wave of tenderness and sadness for them. She felt pity too, for them and for herself. By ones and twos and threes, the room emptied until they were the only ones left. It was five o'clock an hour later than their scheduled appointment. Elliot was restless, Ellen surprisingly blasé. The world of cancer was not the same as the rest of the world. She had learned this with her mother. It had its own set of rules, its own pace, and its own clock. You couldn't get worked up about these differences. It was humiliating enough simply to have the disease. You don't have the disease, Elliot reminded her, not for the first time. You have a chance for the disease. That's why we're here, to remove that chance, reverse the odds." She imagined someone tossing a pair of dice, which seemed an iffy way to decide one's future. She knew it was irrational thinking. This was science, not a crapshoot. Science in Elliot. Her soul made her heart throb, her love. Elliot trying to raise her spirit. Elliot caring for her. Elliot keeping the flame of hope alive. She owed him, if not cheer, then at least a measure of kindness. You're right, she said, lacing her finger through his. I'm sorry for being such a bitch. You have every reason besides you're not. You lie. I never lie, he said, squeezing her hand. His wedding ring pressed against the inside of her little finger. From the finger to her heart. From her heart back to his. The true ring. A nurse came out and called her name, breaking the reverie. They followed her through a door where they were placed in another smaller room. They waited longer, and at length a man appeared. He was tall and broad-chested. He had slate blue eyes and a sweep of lank, wheat-colored hair that all but covered his narrow forehead. His nose was large, his chin square, his lips cherry red. His name was Stanovitch, Dr. Rudolph Stanovich. He had trained jointly as a researcher and a clinician, had spent time at the bench, but now worked solely as a practitioner. He treated patients, and this was work he loved. He was passionate about his profession. He believed in its power to heal and transform. He believed in his company, 22 and You, as the guiding hand of this transformation. He believed in himself. He was a doctor and his job was nothing more or less than helping those in need. He knew Ellen's story before he entered the room. He had read the history she had provided. With minor variations, it was the same history and story of every patient who came to 22 and you. A bad gene or genes, an uncertain future. He had no need to hear it again, yet hear it again he did, sitting in a chair opposite her, folding his hands in his lap meeting her eyes and listening patiently and without interrupting as she laid it out for him. When she was done, he asked some simple questions designed to draw her out further, to allow her to express and unravel at least a little the complex knot of her feelings. She hadn't expected this, had assumed he wanted it cut and dried and to the point, and was taken by surprise. Her feelings? What manner of doctor was this? It's late, she said. Are you sure you want to know? Do you have time? It was an honest question, but also a warning disguised as a little joke. It could get messy, she was telling him. Emotions could fly. Much was bottled up inside. Was he prepared for what might happen when the bottle was uncorked? More to the point, could she trust him to let down her guard? He glanced at his watch, then slipped it off his wrist and into a drawer. Then he settled back in his chair. We'll talk, first you and me. We'll put our cards on the table. We'll make time. He had an easy manner and spoke with an accent, Eastern European, Balkan maybe, something that from other lips could have come out guttural and harsh from his, almost embarrassingly gentle. She drew a breath, then began. A fistful of wadded-up, tear-soaked tissues later, she wiped her nose, heaved a sigh, and was done. She hadn't meant to cry. Doctors were either uncomfortable with tears or else they treated you like children. But there it was. He'd asked for it. Elliot sat beside her. Midway through her unburdening, he'd taken her hand and continued to grip it tightly. She was grateful for his presence. She could have done it alone, but he was a rock. Together, they waited for the doctor's response. He began by thanking her for being open and candid with him. Anger, fear, frustration, and all the rest were natural. Hope was natural, too. Not that she'd mentioned it, but he knew it was there. Why else would she be sitting in the room? Now I'll be candid with you. There is hope, more than hope. We'll fix this, Jean. If you like, we'll turn around your future. I like, she said. He held up a hand. Please, you need to understand the full picture. That's where I'm going to stop for now.